Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to have each of you participate in today's telephone conference on employing F1 students, CPT, OPT, and other issues in transitioning to an H1B status. I have with me a brilliant panel, as always, of our amazing Murthy Law Firm attorneys. Today we have Anna Stepanova, who actually has previously been a designated school official or DSO. Uh, the other title for that is called an international student advisor for those of you who are students uh, or have been foreign students in the United States. And Kevin Andrews, who's been both done H1's green cards and now is in the special projects departments uh, where both Anna and Kevin deal with a bunch of issues uh, with which are more co complex on many levels. Um, so we really wanted to focus on F1 issues because we know, of course, that we're going to be filing H1 cases soon. Many of the people you're going to file the H1s for as employers, people are going to be transitioning from F1 to H1B, most likely from F1 OPT to, to uh, H1B, etc. And so the sorts of issues that you as employers deal with in employing foreign national students how we can make the transition, and clearly it's going to be helpful for you all as employers to have certain processes and procedures to ensure that you're in compliance, uh, whether there's issues dealing with F1 or with the H1B and I-9 rules. And the rules for work authorization, as you know, for students can be complex and not always clear. So with that, I'd like Anna to tell us a little bit of what we're going to speak about. Um, thank you, Sheila. Uh, sure. The most common types of employment that you as employers may be dealing with are curricular practical training or CPT. You may um, have heard this acronym CPT for um, student interns and optional practical training or OPT for students who have already graduated or maybe at some uh, sometimes before graduation uh, as part-time employees. And it's very important for employers to understand these issues because it affects uh, the student's uh, status in the future. When you file an H-1B petition for a former student or a current student, F-1 status issues can come up and specifically CPT and OPT employment issues. Wonderful. Yeah, Thank that's, you. That's right, Anna. Yeah, so there, there are some potential issues that uh, employers will want to look at for their prospective foreign employees who were originally students. And so we'll talk about those. And uh, one of the ones that come up from time to time is the timing of filing that H-1B petition. So as employers know, there's a, for that initial H-1B petition, a very small window, especially in good economic times, to file that initial H-1B. But it can be extremely difficult, sometimes even impossible, for that student to transition into H-1B status without first having to leave the U.S. and get an H-1B visa first. So there are current rules and procedures with the H1, I'm sorry, with the F1 employment and uh, status maintenance program that are a little complex. So many students 
and their employers need to uh, watch for these deadlines and these rules and interpretations because it could impact the company's uh, ability to hire and employ this prospective worker that could translate into a loss of revenue and workforce for those for you U.S. workers. Hmm. Yes, all very, very important time frames, deadlines, and we'll hopefully by the end in the next 30 to 45 minutes, you'll get a pretty good feel uh, or an idea of what is required from you all as employers. So as Anna just mentioned, curricular practical training, what does it exactly mean? Well, it's for students who are still pursuing their course of study or education. One of the core requirements for CPT is that the training has to be an integral part of the established curriculum. Generally, the training meets this requirement if the student registers it for academic credit or it is required by the program of study. And Sheila, that's correct. That's a very important point to understand for employers. Not everybody understands that integral is not defined in the regulation. So SVP, Student and Exchange Visitor Program, that is in charge of CVIS, the tracking system that tracks all students, provide, provided uh, interpretation. And according to SVP, it's actually either registered for academic credit or it's required by the program of study. In addition to those requirements, um, or uh, rather that single requirement of integral, uh, to be an integral part of the established curriculum, there is a separate requirement um, that is uh, called a cooperative agreement between the school and the employer. Historically, however, USAS did not require a written agreement. It's very good practice to have an agreement in writing between you as the employer and the school before the uh, student comes to work for you and uh, before they obtain authorization from the DSO. And Anna, I think some universities even have kind of like boilerplate cooperative agreements. Have you seen that in your practice? That's correct. And if you have uh, a prospective employee, a student who comes to you with that agreement, you need to review it and sign it if you agree with the terms. If the school has it in place, then it must have worked in the past and it should work for you as the employer. Um, also, um, there are uh, some other requirements that have to do with how long the student has already been uh, enrolled in school. And uh, normally, generally, the student has to be enrolled a full, uh, for a full academic year, full time, before they become eligible for CPT. There are some important exceptions, and uh, I can think of two most common ones. The first one is when um, the program of study requires a hands-on training in the first year of enrollment. However, those pro programs are very, very rare. Uh, Masters of Business Administration is one, for example. It usually requires hands-on training within the first year, but beyond that, uh, there are uh, very, very few programs that would actually require hands-on training. So you need to be careful about employing a student in their first year of enrollment on CPT because that may be in violation of their F1 student status. And the second most common um, uh, exemption from this requirement 
is when a student actually goes to a new program of study or transfers to a new school and there was no interruption between the two programs. This is actually also explained by SAVP in um, the DSO training online. And um, uh, as far as I, am, I, I know, there is no other mentioning, but this is the general rule and it's been uh, generally followed by USCIS as well. Okay, and just to be clear, I know, I know many of you heard Anna, who of course lives, eats and breeds F1 stuff as a formerly in her life as a international student advisor or DSO, and again now uh, in her work uh, for a lot of the kind of complex cases and F1 student issues that the firm has been involved with. She's used the word SEVP several times, and I realized we hadn't defined the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, or SEVP, which does a lot of the interpretation on student-related matters. So again, because some of us eat and breathe stuff, we use acronyms and words. We try to always remember to explain it, so I thought that would be helpful. Uh, Kevin, if I can jump and ask you a question. So what are the most common kinds of problems that we have seen with CPT and what should employers be aware of? Well, Sheila, I think it, one last important observation about CPT that answers that, that starts answering your question about those common problems is the fact that CPT authorization does not actually require USCIS to approve in order for the foreign national student to start working in the CPT program that's integral to the pro, uh, academic program like Anna was mentioning. It's actually the DSO, the designated student okay. official, that has that actually by regulation grants authorization for the program. So uh, just keep that in mind when we're talking about some of the common problems later on. Uh, but I, I think to start off with common problems, when we see requests for evidence, um, uh, Anna had touched on it briefly a moment ago, but the, the, the consistent request for these co-op agreements that aren't really required by law, but as a practical matter sort of um, show the contractual relationship between the employer and the, the school. So the, the co-op agreement and the CPT being an integral part of the program of study are important key pon uh, components of evidence that are asked for at the RFE stage. Usually the employer must make sure that the student's program, uh, as I mentioned, is directly related to that field. We've seen some examples, though, of some problems. For example, the problem of uh, CPT authorization where a student is pursuing a master's in business administration, an MBA, but let's say the concentration is in an IT-related field, but the work, the CPT work, uh, is as a software engineer. We've seen those as uh, problems come up in, in practice. And Anna, I think you've seen that as kind of a trend lately, right? Yes, we have actually received a few cases with that problem where the uh, student worked in the field that was not related to his or her major, and it cannot be minor, it cannot be a concentration, it has to be major. If it's a double major, it could be one of the majors, but it has to be related to the student major. Um, uh, Kevin, in addition to that, um, very important aspect of CPT, employers should also remember that even when student is the student is authorized for full-time CPT, they must still maintain their full-time enrollment towards completion of their degree. So if the CPT internship is not registered for full-time, the students may need to be taken additional classes to fulfill that requirement. It's also very important. Generally, CPT should not be used as a mechanism for employment authorization when no other options are available, and we've seen that as a problem as well. 
Right, right. Because ultimately, as both of you have pointed out, and the employers need to be aware, the students' primarily goal uh, is that they should be continuing their education with the just to gain side experience, um, which is just additional experience while on curricular practical training. So now we switch gears from CPT to OPT. And as many of you may be aware, the optional practical training or OPT requires authorization from USCIS, unlike CPT, which doesn't. And I think we, we touched upon that very briefly where we said the, C, the CPT authorization does not require USCIS approval and is issued by the DSO on a Form I-20. But here, you actually require USCIS approval. Uh, it could be authorized prior to or after the completion of study, which is called pre-completion OPT, can be authorized for a maximum of 20 hours per week when school is in session. Um, Kevin, anything about STEM or other related issues? Uh, well, about like you were mentioning about OPT, it, like CPT, the the employment does need to be directly related to the student's program of study. Uh, it is subject, like you mentioned, well, I, I think you had mentioned before, the obstacle practical training is required. Uh, it, it's required that the subject complete one full academic year of full-time uh, enrolled employment before, uh, I'm sorry, uh, of school, of enrollment, before they can authorize be authorized to work on the OPT. So OPT is kind of the, if we're talking about the transition from going from F all the way to H, which we haven't gotten there yet, but CPT is kind of like that work authorization that's eligible for you while you're in school, generally speaking. The OPT is sort of that transitional period where you're able to work. There is pre-completion OPT, like you mentioned, Sheila, of 20 hours, but post-completion is the full-time work that's available based on having the, the EAD card, the work authorization card, to work in a field that's directly related to that program or uh, study. So uh, one thing I just want to make uh, clear because we're talking about transition issues from CPT to OPT is that if you work for less than a year of full-time while you're in school, if you have less than a year of full-time CPT or any part-time CPT during that period, you're still eligible for OPT afterwards. But if you were to work for more than a year of full-time CPT, uh, that renders you ineligible for uh, the OPT uh, for after completion of study. So just something to keep in mind. Uh, one last thing to keep in mind with that with OPT, like you mentioned, Sheila, uh, CPT is just the DSO giving the authorization on the Form I-20, but OPT does, as you mentioned, require authorization from USCIS, and that authorization is evidence in that EAD card. So the, the student, and this is impor important for employers, the student cannot start working until USCIS actually issues that physical EAD card, and that person can only work during that uh, validity period on the EAD card. And that's what the employer is going to use to document for I-9 purposes, document the employment. Um, now, the status, the F-1 status during this OPT period for the student is really dependent upon employment. And the rules allow a, an OPT a student that's working on OPT up to 90 days of unemployment before it's considered a status violation. So the total aggregate period, they have to have a total aggregate period of less than 90 days of unemployment. And during the periods of unemployment, weekends and holidays and all that count. Um, but their status is dependent on maintaining less than 90 days of unemployment during that period of time. 
It's a very interesting issue, Kevin, and there has been a development uh, in the last few months, I should say, with regard to what is actually considered to be unemployment. In October of last year, 2013, we started getting reports that USCIS, um, specifically Nebraska Service Center, started issuing denials on um, extensions of OPT requests, which we're going to talk about a little bit um, later in a minute, uh, because they considered unpaid internship or volunteering to be unemployment or, or not satisfy the uh, employment requirements for OPT. And when they counted the number of days spent on unpaid, uh, doing unpaid internships or volunteering work, um, and if that number exceeded 90 days of permissible unemployment, USCIS said, well, that the student violated their status. Recently, however, uh, literally this week, USCIS seemed to go back to the initial position when unpaid internship and volunteering was uh, satisfied the requirement for employment as um, interpreted by SCVP, Student and Exchange Visitor Program. And now we have the earlier decisions um, uh, re-withdrawn, um, and they approve those cases. It, it, all of it to say is that their position is not entirely clear, but it seems that unpaid internships should satisfy the requirements for OPT employment. And once these RFEs came, really, I mean, uh, Anna is being a little modest here, but I think our firm got a few of these cases and we challenged the government as usual. We didn't file a lawsuit in this particular case like we have with a lot of the writs of mandamus and other kinds of legal actions. But basically, we tried to solve it. We tried to contact the service center directly at the highest mm -hmm. levels and say, guys, you think you made a mistake. This is against your own policy. This is against SEVP guidance. What's the story? And they said, no, we believe this is a problem. A student shouldn't do it, and the employer shouldn't be hiring a person who has been working on unpaid internships or what have you before. And uh, the, the special projects department with Anna as uh, the coordinator basically was able to challenge and win the cases that we filed uh, by arguing with the government and saying, hey, you can't change it. You're not the interpreter. And uh, it looks like they've backpedaled. So that is correct. That so was a great win. That was a wonderful win uh, by the Murti Law Firm. But it's a win not just for the Murti Law Firm clients, but for every single student and employer in the country that can take advantage of these um, policies. Because I feel like when the government does something wrong, applies a law or interprets a law in a manner that is not consistent with their prior interpretations or in a manner that is considered fair and reasonable. As the leading law firm in the country, as uh, one of the leaders, it is our job as lawyers and your job as employers to remember that it is our duty, moral, legal, ethical obligation to challenge and uh, hold the government, hold the government's feet to the fire. Um, so thank you and congratulations on that win here. So what is OPT STEM extension? I know we talked a little bit about that. Um, so as many of you as employers know, especially because the information technology IT industry obviously is in the STEM uh, field, which is the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, so a student who has graduated with a degree in STEM is eligible for, on top of the 12 months of OPT, a one-time 17-month extension of the OPT. So you're talking 12 months plus 17, which is 29 months. 
and the employer must be enrolled in E-Verify in order for the F1 student to take advantage of this one-time STEM 17-month extension and must also agree to report a termination in employment to the school. And this is a very important point, Sheila. Not all employers, or I would say very few of employers, know about this requirement. And it shows up in a USCIS request for evidence all the time when they ask for evidence that the employer agrees or provided um, their um, acknowledgement of their obligation to report termination within 48 hours uh, of the employee leaving the position. Well, that's scary because a lot of people travel around the world and 48 hours seems very, very tight. That, um, is, that is exactly correct. So mm -hmm. what does it mean exactly? Is it 48 hours meaning not business days, but 48 hours, or is it not clear? Because it is, a, it is not clear, but... Because mm -hmm. uh, if an employee leaves on Friday, uh, that means if I'm not... If I don't report by Sunday night, then I'm in violation already. That's crazy. It should be okay to re if the employee leaves on Friday. It should be okay to report within 48 business hours, and hopefully, hopefully. And the DSO's job is to provide the student on the STEM extension with information about how they want to be informed. So it could be via email, it could be via a phone, telephone communication, it could be a letter stamped within 48 hours of the employee leaving the position. And uh, exactly what it means, if the employee doesn't show up at work for five consecutive days, the employer has reason to believe that the employee quit uh, their employment. And this is what, to USAS and SCVP, that constitutes the date from which they, they, they have to start counting 48 hours. Or if the employee simply knows that the employee left the position, they would have to count 48 hours from that, um, from that exact date. If the DSO does not provide this information with the student to the employer, then the employer should use the information, the contact information on the student's I-20 form and notify the official whose name appears on the I-20 form that was issued to the student for the STEM extension. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, th uh, like you said, Sheila, this might be a little scary even uh, also because employers generally might not even know about this requirement unless you have a proactive DSO that's an informing either through the student or directly to the employer of these requirements because it's not like, you know, like with the H-1B program, an employer fills out all these attestations on the H on the LCA and there's no such attestation requirement it clearly laying out this 48-hour rule uh, when it comes to OPT STEM extensions. So it's a little interesting that there's no formal reporting mechanism in, in, uh, included with this uh, system and these rules. Uh, just to be clear, the 90-day unemployment, which is in the first 12 months of OPT, is increased to just 120 days, which is only 30 days more for the extra 17 full months. And if you have additional cap-gap extensions that I think we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. Right. So uh, as we mentioned before with OPT, generally your status as a student at that point is dependent upon your employment. So when it's STEM OPT, you have an additional 30 days of potential unemployment that could be included uh, before you can, before it's considered a status violation. So if it's regular OPT, 90 days, no more than 90 days of unemployment. If you have the STEM OPT based on your STEM degree and your employer participating in E-Verify, you get a 30 extra 30 days of unemployment. But this is for an extra um, it was 17 months of em employment period. So 
you go from, you know, within a 12-month period for OPT, you have up to 90 days of unemployment. But for a 29-month period of STEM OPT, you only have 120 days that you're eligible for unemployment before it's considered a status violation. So some pros and cons there, potentially. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so now let's transition to the H-1B-related issues. By the way, I'm somewhat familiar with uh, the time, and I realize we have to wrap this up in about 40, 45 minutes, and we've used up just about half of our time at this point. So we, we, we always try to wrap up within the 45 minutes. So uh, I know you, you many of you look forward to this each month, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll deal with this because now we're dealing with the cap issues and the transition. So as most of you know, the H-1B cap which is the annual limit on the number of new H-1 workers allowed under the statute, was initially set at 65,000, out of which only 58,500 are available because the rest are kept aside for nationals of Chile and Singapore under their free trade agreements. On top of that, luckily, because universities had a lot of sway and were able to push, they were able to allocate an additional 20,000 slots for those individuals who have completed a U.S. master's degree or higher education from a United States university. So next fiscal year, which really has already, uh, which will be starting in on October 1 of 2014, we would estimate that the demand for H-1Bs will probably be higher than the number of visas that are available which will again most likely result in the lottery, the H-1B visa lottery, um, because all cases that are received within the first five business days will have to be processed and accepted within those five days. So who exactly would be subject to the cap at this point, Kevin? Yeah, so um, so we want to think about the cap these days. Like you mentioned, the economy is doing a little bit better, so it's not like the days of 2008 where the cap just remained open for several weeks or months. So who is subject to the cap? First, we want to see if the H-1B beneficiary that uh, may have been, uh, whether the H-1B beneficiary that's being sponsored may have been previously approved for an H-1B status. If so, that person was counted against the cap, and generally speaking, as long as they haven't exhausted their uh, H-1B time, may not be subject to the cap this time. Uh, also, you want to consider if the employment itself is capped exempt. So some employers are exempt uh, from the, the cap subject requirement, and that basically includes universities and nonprofit affiliates as well as nonprofit and government research organizations. Um, that could be a whole topic in and of itself. And then lastly, uh, also physicians who have obtained waivers through the Conrad program. These are basically uh, physicians that came in on the J-1 visa to do foreign medical uh, res uh, education here in the United States. They're foreign medical graduates actually doing their internship. And uh, if they qualify for a Conrad program, which is a state program for physicians to employ them in medically underserved areas, they would also be capped exempt. So it's always a good preliminary question to see, am I even subject to this cap before talking about what the cap is and, uh, and cap gap? Hmm. But it's not all nonprofits. There are restrictions even in that. Um, that's, that's why I mentioned that that's a topic in and of itself. There are some exceptions there, but generally speaking, uh, universities and, no, and nonprofit affiliates with research, uh, w uh, research facilities may be exempt. It says nonprofit affiliates as well as nonprofit and government research organizations. So the nonprofit there defines the government research organizations that are nonprofit government research, or is it just nonprofit and? Oh, oh, sorry, nonprofit and government research. Uh, so right. if you, someone works for a, like the American Red Cross or the Salvation Army, they could be exempt? Potentially exempt, yeah. Okay. So what is CapGap, Anna? 
The cap gap uh, it consists, of course, with, um, uh, it, you know, of two words. Cap refers to the number of visas available, and gap is the time period between the uh, time the student's F1 status expires and the permitted start date for the H-1B status. And most companies who are subject to the cap can only start on October 1st if the demand for visas is much higher than the visa number um, numbers are available. And the cap gap is typically an automatic period of an extension of F1 status for students transitioning to H1B status, provided some specific criteria um, met. Without this relief, without the cap gap relief, many students would be faced with the prospect of either having to leave the U.S. between the end of their F1 status and the beginning of their H1B employment, or they would have to find a way to bridge the gap uh, with uh, some interim status, for example, enrolling in school again or going, um, uh, changing their status to dependent status if their spouse is, for example, in H-1B status. This uh, relief is very important to a lot of students and a lot of employers who are sponsoring students for H-1B, and it's important to understand the requirements, and I believe that Kevin is going to talk about them as well. Right. So just to be clear here, I mean, when CapGap comes into play is typically when a student finishes the academic program, uh, typically in the summer, and maybe they uh, have some OPT or, or for whatever reason there is not enough time, OPT time, between the ending of the student's program and the beginning of that CAP subject H-1B petition that doesn't start until October 1. So the CapGap provision, I think several years ago, these people, the only thing that they could do is, you know, usually have to leave and then come back on October 1, and that could disrupt your, uh, you know, an employer's operations. So this cap gap provision allows the status and the work authorization of the F1 student to be extended if they do the following things. First, timely file the H-1B case, the H-1B petition, and the request for a change of status. So uh, the H-1B petition needs to be timely filed, and that typically for our cap subject cases would be April 1, the very first day that the CAP uh, season opens, because you can file the H-1B petition up to six months prior to the, uh, to the start date. So uh, the, the start date needs to be indicated as October 1. Essentially, CAP gap can only cover a period of up to no later than September 30th of that year. So the start date can be no later than October 1. The status and the work authorization for the students that are on OPT will automatically continue until October 1 or until the H-1B cap case is rejected. So that's a clear, uh, that's a uh, critical distinction to make there because, you know, these cases, if they aren't accepted when the lottery, because like Sheila mentioned, we do expect that there's going to be a lot more, uh, there's a lot higher demand than there are supply for the H-1B visas. So if it's rejected, then the um, work authorization ends at that time. Um, also, in order to be eligible, the F-1 student must not have otherwise violated the terms and conditions of their status. So we mentioned earlier in the recording here that it's important for employers to be aware of these student issues because it can come back and be create problems during the, the time that you expected this worker to be on H-1B. Um, also, the uh, if the F-1 student has F-2 dependents, their uh, F-2 <coughs> status is also automatically extended uh, with this cap gap. So most of the times in, in, in immigration, when dealing with immigration benefits, dependents need to be independently extended, but here's a situation where the F-2 status is automatically extended. Okay. 
Uh, one of the things I saw, I also wanted to just touch base is keep in mind a lot of these provisions, we didn't have any answers till 2008, just four or five years ago. And so it's really important to remember that uh, before that, we always would tell students, don't travel, don't take a risk. There's no cap cap. There's no protection. You probably have to stop working when your OPT expires and you just have to sit here and wait uh, till October the 1st. And we weren't even sure they were legally allowed to stay in the U.S. So it was only on April 8, 2008, when uh, the Department of Homeland Security issued the interim final rule in the Federal Register, which now gives F-1 students the option to extend their status and take advantage of CAPCAP and then work during the interim phase as well. And so, you know, from there, Anna, can you clarify what events would affect the maximum period of the CAPCAP extension? Uh, yes, Sheila. Kevin already mentioned that status and work authorization for students on LPT automatically continues until October 1st or until certain events happen. And just so that you understand exactly when students have to stop working, when their status expires, th this can be a little bit hard to understand and it's a little bit complicated. But the first th thing to remember um, is that if your H-1B petition is pending, it's, um, if it's approved or if it's pending beyond October 1st, um, the start date for which it was filed, then the authorization is not going to last uh, under the cap gap um, after October 1st. The student will be in the period of authorized stay after October 1st if the petition is still pending and will not be able to work. So the cap gap uh, relief does not extend beyond October 1st. That's the first thing to remember. Now, as Kevin said that um, there are some triggering events upon which the student status may um, end or they may have a grace period or their employment authorization may end. So what are those triggering events? Usually, SVP, the Student Exchange Visitor Program, issues very um, detailed guidance on specific dates of termination of F1 status conditioned upon the specific events and they usually issued every year when the uh, H1B filing uh, period starts and we usually publish a Murthy Bulletin article on this issue so if you don't remember these important dates you may look forward to reading this article which will probably be published sometime closer to um, the end of spring. This guidance could be used as a point of reference when you are trying to determine if your employee is able to benefit from the cap gap extension. For example, if the petition is properly filed, this alone extends the student OPT period um, until a specific time in the future. If the petition is not selected for receding, then the student status would terminate on the last date of receiving. And again, that would be in the SAVP specific guidance for that particular year. And that would happen unless the student had remaining time in his or her OPT card. So if the H-1B petition is not selected um, in the lottery, then um, the student's OPT authorization is not invalidated by that, by that triggering event. They would have to stop working and they would not benefit from the cap gap only if they don't have an independent OPT um, EAD card. 
If the petition was selected in the lottery, then the status would generally be extended at, until September 30, so through the cap gap period. If the petition is withdrawn or denied, the OPT authorization ends 10 days after the date of the withdrawal or denial, and the student would have an additional 60 days of grace period to remain in the U.S. to prepare for uh, departure or to change to a different status or to enroll in a different program or a different school. If the uh, H-1B petition is denied based on the uh, status violation or if the change of status is denied, then the student does not have grace period. And that's important because a lot of people are calling us asking, do I have 60 days of grace period? My petition has just been denied. And the general rule is yes unless there was a determination of a violation of F1 status. Beforehand, before filing in the, the case. So in, that's with the, with the denial. Yeah, before. The denial. Exactly. That's what they explained. And exactly. one more point that I think it's important for us to clarify, because when we keep using the word rejection, most normal people assume that the word rejection is uh, interchangeable with a denial. But in fact, the USCIS, and when we as immigration lawyers use the word rejection, it means the government refused to accept the, pay, the case because it was rejected in the lottery. But when it's denied, that means the USCIS accepted the case, reviewed it, and then issued a denial. So I think that would that's a helpful clarification for both for for both of the um, background information that Kevin and Anna just shared with us. Now let's uh, go go back to you, Kevin. How will a student or an employer know that they have obtained the cap gap extension? For example, do they have to request cap gap extension in the H one petition? Well, the, the petitioning employer, the employer who actually files that H-1B petition, should know that it was whether the petition met those requirements. It was timely filed, requesting the change of status with an October 1 start date. So really, though, practically, until the receipt notice is issued by USCIS, only the petitioner is really going to know whether or not it was actually properly filed. Um, but once USCIS receipts the petition, the information uh, in its system should update that student's SEVIS uh, record, SEVIS record. And uh, sometimes, though, there are instances, and I think uh, Anna has seen this frequently, where there's uh, the, a lack of updates in, in the data of that system. And, you know, students are responsible for checking with their DSO, verifying that their SEVIS record has been updated. Uh, sometimes they can get the uh, what's called like a cap gap I-20 that the employers probably are going to need in order to update their I-9s to show valid work authorization for this worker during this cap gap period. So, um, but really all of this is the employer's control, not so much the student. So there does, generally speaking, need to be some effective communication between the student employee and the employer and the DSO. Uh, students aren't going to be no notified that the H-1B petition is denied or withdrawn. Only the employer is going to be notified of that. So, But it is important for them to remain in contact with employers and with the DSO to, you know, as these changes, as uh, things happen in the case, to everybody's made aware so they know how to proceed correctly. Okay, thank you. And I know sometimes we get asked the question whether, you know, the student uh, would obtain any new kind of I-20 form from the university or the school to reflect the fact that the student is in a period of cap gap extension. While generally it is not, there is no requirement as such, in some cases it is, uh, a student um, should obtain the I-20. If the CVIS system does not reflect the proper filing of the H-1 petition, 
the DSO would need to issue a new I-20 to reflect the student's eligibility for the H-1B cap gap and the extension of the F-1 uh, student status. This would then be sufficient for employment and for I-9 purposes. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, employers should keep in mind when you're the, the I-9 handbook, it's a form called M274, the I-9 handbook, has a pretty good comprehensive section now on what to do for these kind of weird, quirky immigration situations. And there's specific information about uh, what to do during CapCap. And in the handbook, it does mention that the uh, an, an updated I-20 should be provided. So uh, from an employer's perspective, getting that, that I-9, um, get, getting that CapCap I-20 is a good practice for their documentation purposes for work authorization. Very good. Anna, can a student who is the beneficiary of an H-1 petition filed for a change of status benefit from the automatic extension if the petition is filed during the grace period time after the completion of the OPT employment authorization? And if so, would this person be able to continue employment or just to extend the grace period until October 1st? This is a very common question, Sheila. A lot of people, employers, and their F-1 employees don't realize that cap gap has two faces, actually. Um, the cap gap is usually used, this term is usually used with regard to students whose not only F-1 status, but their employment authorization continues through the end of September and takes them all the way up to the, the start of their H-1B employment on October 1st. However, it's not always the case. In the situation that you described, Sheila, uh, if the petition is filed during the uh, grace period and the student's OPT EAD has already expired, their status will continue through the end of September, but their employment authorization is not going to continue. In fact, they're not going to be employment authorized and they may only remain in the U.S. and F-1 valid status, but they should consider the whole cap gap to be, um, in a way, just the extension of their grace period. And this is um, basically what it is. Only F-1 status will continue, but not employment authorization. So really, it's important to think about work authorization and status as two separate things. So if the work authorization ends, you can't extend it because it's, it's already ended. But if they're both valid at the time that it's filed, then you can extend both. Okay, and just so we need to wrap up, and I know we have two or three minutes left. So once the H-1 petition is approved with the change of status, the question really is, can the student remain in F-1 OPT status and use the remaining time in OPT? And I guess it, the answer really is it will depend, because generally the answer is no. Once the H-1 petition is approved with the change of status, the beneficiary is required to start H-1B employment on the petition validity date, which is October 1st. The remaining time in OPT cannot be reclaimed, uh, on the other hand, obviously, if it's approved before October 1st, let's say the H-1 petition is approved in May, then the cap gap extension will allow the person to keep working and the person only changes status on H-1B. Oh, Kevin, did you want to add anything to that? Well, just your point there about if the student doesn't want to start the H-1B employment, decides they really just want to remain in F-1 status, and the petition is approved before October 1, like you said, the employer, who, remember, this H-1B petition belongs to the employer, 
In order for this to work, the employer should withdraw that H-1B petition. The student is going to have to request that the DSO at their school make a fix in their SCVP record. Uh, they have to do a data fix with the help desk at SCVP, and the DSO should know how to do that. Uh, once the H-1B petition is approved, though, and it's, if it's after the October 1 start date, then that data fix is no longer available. So you could potentially do it beforehand, and it might require a lot of work, but definitely after the October 1 start date, if it's approved, really no options there. Yeah. So, you know, we really want to say that this is obviously a very, very exciting, interesting, tough, complex uh, situation where students and recent graduates, especially STEM graduates, we all recognize them as valuable resources for many employers in the U.S., especially in this high information uh, high high technology, information technology era. And since many of these students and recent STEM grads tend to be foreign nationals, employers need to be aware of the potential issues, complexities, timeframes, nuances, your obligations as employers and the employee's obligation because if the employee fails to maintain F1 status, then you're hiring a person who's not legally authorized to stay or live or work in the United States. So both of you are liable for breach of U.S. immigration laws. And as we know, the federal government is continuing to conduct more investigation, both of universities and H-1 employers in recent years. And violations of H-1B and our work authorizations carry both civil and criminal penalties for business owners. So it's important to have our, your systems in place to deal with these issues. And of course, if you ever need to speak with an incredibly knowledgeable attorney or legal team, you know the best in the world, the Murthy Law Firm, www.murthy.com, and where to come. Uh, as I said earlier in the initial introduction, Anna Stepanova was a designated school official or international student advisor with a prestigious Midwestern university. She's published articles uh, both uh, with the American Immigration Lawyers Association and has spoken at various ALA conferences. Um, and all of us have spoken on this issue. And we have a fabulous team. We unfortunately get called when there are denials, problems, or other complex issues. But prevention, as you know, is always cheaper than cure. Uh, so we would recommend and urge you to contact us should you have students and, and you think that something doesn't make sense or you just need to do a brief consultation to clarify certain issues. As always, we thank you very much for joining us and making time in your busy day to understand the complexities and nuances of immigration law. On behalf of Anna, Kevin, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy law firm legal team and family, we wish you and your family the very best for 2014, and we look forward to continuing to take very good care of you. Have a great day.